0: Hello beautiful people out there in Brattleboro, you are listening to the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 FM LP, your local community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and I'm on the road today with Emily Kornheiser and Mara Collins from the Vermont Housing Finance Agency. So if you hear some different sounds, it's because we are being hosted by the lovely municipality and village of Rockingham and Bellows Falls. So thank you, they loaned us offices today. Huge thank you to them. Um, as I said, I am your host, Olga Peters. Welcome, contributor Emily Kornheiser. How are you today? I am great, Olga, thank you. Thank you for being here. And Mara Collins, thank you for being here too.
1: It was a lovely drive and I love this community, so it's great to get to this part of the state. and I'm excited to talk to you today.
0: Well, and we should mention that after this interview, we're pre-recording, we will be attending a public hearing on housing, and guess what we're going to talk about today? Are we going to talk about housing? Yeah! Yes! Good,
1: because it's about the only thing I'm qualified to talk about, so I think that's why I'm here.
0: Oh, gee, we were going to talk about hydraulic engineering. Oh, dear.
1: (laughs) Then you won't hear my voice after
0: all. So, Mara Collins, Executive Director, Vermont Housing and Finance Agency, I am curious... What brought you to this position here and now?
1: Well, I've only had this position since January of this year. I've worked for VHFA, the Vermont Housing Finance Agency, uh, since 2002. So I've been here in Vermont doing this work uh, for the past 17 years, but um, recently just took over as the director. And um, what brought me here is truly an honest personal passion in housing. Um, when I graduated from college and ended up in Boston working for an affordable housing organization. I have to be honest that it was a typical first job out of college. um, And when I started, I didn't have the same commitment to housing that has grown over the years. And in many ways, that while I was learning about housing and um, uh, starting to get to know the programs and what happened, It was on 9-11 in 2001 when I was downtown Boston when I remember everything shifting for me Mm -hmm. Um, walking through the streets of the city as the um, the towers had not yet fallen but we knew that um, the buildings were on fire and the um, grates of the store owners were being pulled down as I was walking through the streets trying to find my husband and then get home and Everyone was crying. Everyone was scared. The building seemed so tall, and we were all walking down the middle of the street, totally snarling up traffic, because we wanted to get away from the buildings that we thought planes were going to fly into. And as that was happening, I was walking by people who were homeless, and Mm. I was desperate to get home. Now, home at this point, I was in my early 20s, home was about the size of a shoebox, and it was an apartment. It was not the home I had lived in for the first 20 some odd years of my life where my parents were and what people would traditionally think of as an owner occupied home. Home was this apartment I'd been in for a few months at that point. But home was where I remember when I got there, it, that's when the tears fell that's when the mind started racing that's where I was able to finally get a landline to call my people, my family, my friends find out who's where, who's safe, who's not, and home was the respite where I could start to figure out what in the world was happening and I just kept being haunted by these images of people I had walked by an hour earlier who were still on the street, who Mm -hmm. were still next to those tall buildings, still sharing that feeling of fear and and not understanding and That's when everything started to change for me And I started to know no know housing is going to be what I do for the rest of my life Because it is important that all of us have that respite in that place that uh, in that moment. I knew I needed and
0: Wow I, Emily and I, I think are a little teary at this mm-hmm. moment. Thank you for for sharing that and I think you I think you really touched on why home is more than just a roof over our heads. It's that place of safety.
1: It is. And or it should be. <laughs> what I had been doing in Boston was great work and um, that was um, affordable housing specifically working on issues around homelessness and people with disabilities. And um, So my personal passion is really for Um, the most vulnerable among us who have maybe extra challenges to accessing housing and Now VHFA where I work um, We are a mortgage lender. We work with first-time homebuyers who are making that leap into becoming permanent Vermonters and and owning a home. We also give out loans to uh, developers of affordable rental housing and so the depth and breadth of housing is has been fascinating to me. I'm a continual lifelong learner. There's so much to, um, to understand in this world, uh, which is why I, I love to learn about hydroelectrics so or whatever you <laughs> said, but I'm not qualified because just housing is so broad. And so, yes, it is fundamentally important, but there's everything from working on homeless policy to working on mortgage finance lending that needs attention and that is important, and that's what I find so fascinating about the work.
2: Mm -hmm. And the other thing I heard in your story, or I was imagining in your story, um, was the idea of walking down the street and the people that you walk down the street with, the people that you see every day, the people who might be your neighbors once you find that respite, how you then make meaning with those people and how the shape of cities, you know, or the shape of a place so affects our emotional experience of neighbor and community and all of that. You know, you talked about the looming buildings and the fear of those looming buildings and um, stepping into the middle and... So I think a lot about sort of the width of sidewalks and how that affects our lives and if our buildings have common spaces or not and all of that and how that changes the way we interact with each other. And so I really, I heard that in your story too.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, architecture and um, our spaces and the placemaking that we do is so important. And there's a, A vulnerability of just breaking down some of the fences and Mm -hmm. creating sidewalks or paths to just other people Mm -hmm. and it's the connecting with what their human needs are and what mine are when I um, talk about being so passionate around homelessness and uh, housing for people with disabilities I am so lucky that I have never been housing insecure you know that 9-11 moment was my experience in in Um, really seeing the other side in that moment. But I have not been without a home in my lifetime. Mm. But I do live with people with severe mental illness. I have a lot of addiction in my family. There's a lot of personal challenges that I have seen people walk through with pretty moderate modest means and and education and college education and and uh, health insurance and it is still a really hard road to walk Mm -hmm. and so while buildings and spaces can um, create community I also think that there's something in all of us to be willing to create community with people who may seem different from us but realize that there is a common shared connection through some of these more important things that we face.
2: Absolutely. I think um, one of my more powerful housing moments was when I was um, a single mother and I was living in this six-bedroom, six-apartment duplex, um, and for whatever reason, the person who owned that building was renting out to just a bizarre range of people, and some of the units were Section 8, and some of the units weren't, and some of the units had families that had been living there for 30 years, and some of us had just been there for a month, and The community that we built across difference amongst those six units allowed me to see and how much we sort of strengthened each other's parenting because of that and each other's experience of family because of that really helped me see how much diverse housing can be a powerful tool for resiliency in a community. and so I've been really carrying that into the work I've been doing lately.
1: Yeah, because so often people in my industry, we get very siloed. We yeah. will start, I mean, if we talk housing, my first question is, what are we talking about, homeownership or rental? Mm-hmm. And I will put a line between the two, not because I want to draw a line, but because, as I said before, there's just so much to talk about. I need to know which side of this fence you're on, mm-hmm. but there is... Um, There are amazing models that happen, you know, now with cooperative homes and just different like you're talking about where community can be built and it doesn't have to fall into these traditional uh, uh, definitions of family or household. You know, it's just it's so much more fun when you get in the middle and start (laughs) figuring out what's possible.
0: I'd love to take a a step back, Mara, and talk a little bit about VHFA. Um, You mentioned it it deals with mortgages, but what else um, might people access
1: it for?
2: Yeah, How does it all work?
1: Yeah, well, we are very confusing, um, (laughs) and I still am convinced my spouse is trying to figure it out, even after 17 years of listening to me talk about it at the dinner table, because it's not obvious and we're not making it hard on purpose, but here's how we work. Um, every state in the country has a housing finance agency. So there's, I work for the Vermont Housing Finance Agency, but there's a New Hampshire Housing Finance Agency and you know, keep going down through the list. And we all were created between the late 60s and the early 80s and we all do f- similar work in many ways. and. Our mortgage lending is interesting because uh, with that, you get a VHFA mortgage, but you don't come to VHFA's offices. We have one office in Burlington, but we serve the state, and you can't walk down the street and walk into a VHFA branch and get a VHFA mortgage. Instead you go to one of our participating lenders, which Mm -hmm. may be a local bank, community bank, could be um, a uh, credit union, could be a mortgage company. And you would talk to them and say, Here's my income. How much of a home can I qualify for? Here's some stats about me. And that lender will say, Oh, you qualify for a VHFA loan. And if you get a VHFA loan, you can get down payment assistance, and here's how their underwriting works. And, you know, let's see if you qualify. And you will work with that local banker. Um, whether it be Brailleboro Savings and Loan or the People's United or like I said a mortgage company And you'll work with them through the end and they will be your loan officer and you'll do your closing with them A month later after you you know have already put the drapes up and settled into your home They are selling us that loan on the back end And we are you know giving them the money for that to keep the capital flowing oh, So, And then do you keep it? So, we package them together. We used to keep it before the recession, but the recession changed everything for most people in housing finance. And now we package them together, similar loans, you know, because we work just with a certain income group and, and certain standard underwriting. We package them together into mortgage backed securities, MBSs, and um, then we buy those securities so we are that investor on the back end um and the way we pay for that is that we sell tax-exempt bonds to investors now before your eyes glaze over this really is very simple so i can just <laughs> I, I, trust me i've been in enough cocktail Luckily, parties they, i can yeah i can do this but you know you you when you're investing in your 401k or when big um investors they want stocks they want bonds. So for some reason, you know, they want some some stable good bonds and they um you can get taxable bonds. We are allowed to sell tax exempt bonds. So hmm. when you buy our bonds, you would accept a little bit lower of a return because you're not going to have to pay taxes on the that interest earnings. Hmm. So that way we can um We get this money, we sell these bonds, and with the money that we get in from the investors, we pull it together. Let's say we do a $20 million bond issuance. We pull together all the funds, and um, so we have $20 million to lend out. And let's say I have told you that I'll pay you just under 3% for this tax bond. Then I'm going to turn around and make a mortgage at just under 4% with it. Oh, and VHFA okay. lives off that spread it's a limited spread it's not unlimited but um, we can um, then that's the money that pays for the operations of VHFA so we are not a part of state government Just we do ask. not get state appropriations uh, we are very independent and self-sufficient in that way and we do that I was explaining it on the mortgage side for homeownership take the same system and we do it on the rental side and on the rental side uh, developers who want to build um, a building of or um, rehab a building and can you perm- use
2: Snowblock as an example?
1: Oh, there you go. Since oh, it, good.
2: I think it's on people's minds, and it's people are moving in this week. Yep, just yep.
0: was for, that the uh, opening. For those who don't uh, aren't from Brattleboro who are listening to this, the Snowblock is a, a recent housing development in downtown Brattleboro.
1: Yeah, and it's a great one. Talk about infill development. It's tucked into this really um, unique site. And um, so the Wyndham Windsor Housing Trust is a local nonprofit who has deep roots in the community, has done a lot of great investment, bringing up the quality of homes, not just in Brattleboro, but throughout the broader region. They and Housing Vermont, a, a real estate developer partner of theirs, Uh, came to VHFA and asked for funding to build this building and We awarded them federal tax credits the low-income housing tax credits and You know, they're a nonprofit. They Mm -hmm. don't need tax breaks. They don't need tax credits They definitely don't need you know millions of dollars of them Um, and so housing Vermont worked with Wyndham Windsor to sell those tax credits and uh, turn that into money. So investors who, banks and insurance companies, need um, tax credits. They, they like getting a little break on their taxes. So they will invest in affordable housing and they will be able to write down their taxes for the next 10 years. And the tax credits that we awarded, you know, flow through this system to them. And the developer, when the Windsor gets this, um, uh, money to put towards the, the building of snowblock block, but it, it's not enough money The mm. way the federal system works the f- tax credits will only pay for about 70% of what's needed in a deal mm. So after that Wyndham Windsor and housing Vermont have to fill in the other 30% of the pie So then they come to us and they get a loan and that's when I was talking about the bonds We will sell some bonds. We'll take that money. We'll loan out those bond proceeds to Wyndham-Windsor and they get a mortgage on that building to fill part of that 30%. But Snowblock is interesting because VHFA encourages through, when since we're handing out this government money uh, and we're going to pay 70% of the tab, I'm sorry, we want you to, to pass a high bar in terms of what you're doing. We don't want to see sprawling housing uh, out, you know, where there's prime agriculture land, where the working landscape needs to be. We want it, like Snowblock, downtown. And we want to make sure that it has a range of people who can live there, afford to live there. Emily, like you were talking about your six apartment building, the Snowblock is gonna have, I think it's four units, four of the apartments are set aside for, youth who have been homeless or at risk of homelessness and
2: and so it's their first apartment some Mm -hmm. of them have never lived somewhere long term in their lives and they've been sort of bouncing from i work at youth services so we've been bouncing from house to they've been bouncing from home to home their whole life and so this is their first spot really hard to get a place without a rental history and so it's incredible that those spots are kept aside
1: for them absolutely and it's really only possible because Wyndham Windsor has great service partners, you know, like the center, who can be there to support people in that first department mm-hmm. because, you know, I described my first department in Boston, <laughs> and while I described it as small as a shoebox, you know, uh, it definitely wasn't winning any um, hygiene or cleanliness awards. I didn't know what I was doing, you know what I mean, and so. Um, I was lucky that I had a strong family base who supported me through and sort of taught me what it was like to be a tenant Mm -hmm. but when you don't have that you need other community partners to help play that role and so those kind of partnerships are important to make these things work so it the snow block just to wrap up that example is a great um, because it it uses those tax credits it gets some um, uh, some loan money, and then you know, you your listeners may have heard about a housing bond that we mm-hmm. did a couple years ago. It, it was at one point called the 35 million dollar bond, but VHFA was able to sell it to these investors and, and do things that made it very marketable. We ended up getting 37 million dollars out of this bond, which was we're very proud of, and that money then we give to the Vermont Housing Conservation Board, which is a sister organization of ours, also funding affordable housing throughout the state. And they have been um, giving that bond money out along with other money that they have available to fill in that last piece of the pie, that gap that's needed to make sure that the building could be built. And Mm -hmm. that bond money that the legislature, especially the Commerce Committee that you now sit on, Mm -hmm. uh, was such a leader in, um, in passing that bond money has a target that some of the apartments not only do some of the the tax credits say that some of the apartments have to be reserved for people who are homeless the bond money says we also want to make sure that there are people who are more moderate income and who are more earning around the median income of the community and just above we want to make sure that they have places too because that's the thing about housing needs is mm-hmm. it's it is concentrated on extremely low-income households but it clearly affects people who are working with good incomes but still can't afford to live in all of our communities of the state.
2: I would love to talk a little bit more about that cascade effect because whenever we focus on any one population and their housing needs there's always all of the people in the back of the room who say but what about but what about and so I would love if we could unpack a little bit about that cascade effect of if you provide housing for one group, sort of what frees up and what moves for other folks.
1: It does, you know, and the most common time people bring up this discussion is around providing age-restricted housing or elderly Mm -hmm. housing. Uh, The argument is we have a traditional older woman often, sometimes a couple, but often a woman who's in the family homestead and the children are gone, maybe even the husband is gone, and now if she could move into an affordable um, elderly building, then it would free up a single-family home for a first-time home buyer to buy and things mm-hmm. like that. And that that kind of um, flow in a housing market is so important. Because and so
2: the first-time home buyer, I just want to make sure I follow yeah. this and really spell it out, the first-time home buyer then would buy that family home that this woman has moved out of that was probably to I mean I certainly could not take care of my home by myself that sounds like a nightmare. Um and then whatever unit they were renting that they yes l- exited then is another rental unit that's on the market for someone who might be in an affordable rental unit that's ready to move out of that.
1: Absolutely. And it even goes from there. We are seeing a lot more interest by communities and by homeowners to create in my industry, we very we take everything sexy and exciting and turn them into wonky terms. So <laughs> I would call it an accessory dwelling unit, an mm-hmm. ADU. What your listeners are used to hearing around the dinner table is called a granny flat, a mother-in-law apartment, something like that. So let's imagine that this elderly woman has moved into her elderly housing. The first time home buying family has moved up into this family house where they're going to raise their children. They freed up the apartment wherever they were living before. But we find that it's often Younger, newer homeowners who are willing to look at maybe they bought the home and it's even a little too big for them. We are having fewer kids. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe the older woman had three kids through the house, this family only has one or two they may um, peel off a portion of it and create a small rental unit if you know I've seen it in raised ranches where um, Mm -hmm. you know the downstairs is the rental unit sometimes you know you see it if there's an addition or or, um, something and so that could create even another housing unit that gets spurred when there's community support for that thing so Mm -hmm. it's a great I I my husband jokes that I am the Kevin Bacon 6 degrees of separation <laughs> argument for all things housing. And I could all I could take any conversation ah. and and essentially bring it always back to housing and how housing solves all our problems and and does everything. And I also can just find a way to be creating more housing and you know, we're here in Bellows Falls and they're going to be taking an old garage and turning it into housing. We've seen it Um, And we're in an opera house right now, and I know that in St. Albans, there's an opera house they turned into housing. I mean, you can, you show me a single-family home, it's like, I don't want to always cram a ton of units in there, but, you know, there's a lot that we can do with our structures if we sort of start to move past how those structures have always been used historically.
0: So we have a couple minutes before we need to go to break, but I, I wanted to check in with you, Mara, you know, we hear in a lot of news reports that we have a housing crisis in Vermont. And I'm wondering from your point of view, what does the word crisis mean and what is its what's at its core that's
1: perpetuating it? Well, I, I love it that you asked that question because I use the term housing crisis, affordable um, affordability crisis, affordable housing crisis myself. But it's fun to have a little to have a minute to explain that what i see and what i read in social media comments and and comments on articles is that however we're describing the crisis in that with that housing solution um like snowblock mm-hmm. or in the article we're talking about people are lined up with comments about that's not the crisis that they're facing they're mm-hmm. cri- facing this other housing crisis and so there isn't one there isn't one need striking Vermont, especially as you look across our different communities. Mm-hmm. So I would say most often it goes back to affordability. And I do think that that is the linchpin of what connects these, these housing crisis. But in some of our communities, I think of the Upper Valley, I think of the Champlain Valley, I think of uh, Montpelier area, we need units, and the crisis is the low vacancy rate. And
2: Brattleboro, I think, has one of the lowest vacancy rates in the state. It's Absolutely. Less than, so it's I think crazy. it's less than 1%. Yeah, yeah, it's in
1: our downtown, you know, our, our cities and our towns that are thriving or on the cusp of thriving, you know, have some commercial space, have um, uh, jobs nearby. We find in so many communities there's just a, a lack of stock, housing stock, and therefore, there's not that churn. Emily, you were talking about you know, the flow of tenure you know, from renter to owner to maybe renter to, and, and through one's age um, and life experiences. When, when there's a bottleneck to that flow, we have a crisis and that happens when we don't have enough stock. And sometimes, there's communities in our state that have the stock, no one is gonna live in that stock it's boarded up or Mm -hmm. no one should exactly right. (laughs) it is in such poor quality and and so the numbers fool us when we look when we do needs assessments we get kind of tricked into thinking maybe we don't need to um to do as much here because there's so much stock available but then you have to dig deeper and say okay maybe we don't need to create the housing maybe we need to rehab the housing renovate it and make it so that it's marketable Make it so it's energy efficient so that someone can afford to live there long term and not have, you know, their rent plus astronomical heating bills. Um, maybe, you know, and maybe sometimes there are homes we have to demolish. And I don't want to come out as, you know, tear down all the homes because I'm the home's proponent. But there are communities that we have seen great community development that has happened when we've acknowledged that some of these homes have fallen into such disrepair and the concentration of units is so tight that we do need to like i said look at things a little differently than we've always looked at them
2: and i know rockingham where we're sitting has had a number of condemned buildings recently and brattleboro is really upping its housing inspection services and i think we're pretty aware that there's going to be some more condemning of buildings there and we have people who are living in those
1: buildings and then yeah are out on the streets from there exactly and you know the legislature last year and this coming year is going to continue to look at the housing um uh, safety standards and and what those codes are and and how we can do a better job there's some i think there's it's either nine or eleven communities in the state that have taken a really leadership role brattleboro being one of them um, that have created their own inspection systems, and they are trying to really, or they are, you know, they understand the need, they've identified the buildings, they know where the rentals are, and they're doing something about it. Um, that is hard for every town to do. And so yes. how can we as a state provide the, the state-level resources um, so that Holtney and um, Rockingham and all of our communities don't have to create their own system but are covered and that we know that homes are safe for the residents. And
2: what do we do as communities when units are condemned and there's people living in them? What happens to those Mm -hmm. folks? Um, Most people would rather live in a condemned building than no building at all. And so make sure that we're really building a system that works on both ends. Um, Another big issue for me around the housing crisis that comes up over and over and over again is that we have talked about um, our mental health system and our hospital beds and we've talked about our correction system and our prison beds and in both of those systems people will say over and over and over again if you listen we have people who are involved in the correction system, who are still in prison, and we have people at the retreat who are in intensive unit beds in the retreat because they have nowhere to go, mm-hmm. not because they need to be in that level of supervision.
1: Absolutely, yeah, and that's that been going for years. Process. Yes. I mean, the whole time I've been in Vermont, I've known the cost of, um, of a stay in corrections because it comes up, you know, we always, we've had this, not the same people, but the same 150-ish mm-hmm. people in corrections but for the lack of housing and so that is a piece of our crisis and that that housing crisis is about those apartments that have where people may need supports and needs it goes to the independent housing of someone um, needing an affordable rental it um, it does go all the way up into home a lot of our um, Vermonters are looking to be homeowners and because they're paying so much in their rent, that's the crisis. They can't save up enough money to get the down payment to go be that first-time homebuyer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, this crisis... And then one can fairly turn it on its head, say chicken or the egg, is the problem that the housing isn't cheap enough? Or is the problem that the are problem wages that the are, not, wages high are not high enough? <laughs> is it... Um, is it both? It, mm-hmm. You know, is it, um, is it the, um, the limited stock that we have or should um, everyone have more of a voucher system and sort of, you know, have that uh, easier ability to pay their rent? Because is it all just the cost of health care? <laughs> <laughs> or child care? Or student loans. You know, it just it starts building itself, and really, what happens is instead of having to pick one thing that I point to as a problem, I just start appreciating the ever mounting um, um, weight that these barriers put on a household. And that when you think about a household that maybe has children, so they have the extra weight of trying to figure out child care, the extra weight of figuring out long transportation how they're going to afford that because they bought or or are renting in a place way outside of town the extra weight of how they pay their utility bills when they're in an inefficient old Mm -hmm. below quality um home it just it builds and builds and when you add in mental health challenges when you add in racial discrimination that still is happening in this state as people go to look for housing it it builds to a point that the the housing crisis to get back Olga to your original (laughs) question the housing crisis is all of that Mm -hmm. and that's why we need to be doing something across the board and while I appreciate people's social media comments all fired up that You know, the snow block isn't going to solve all of our housing problems. I just always want to respond to them all saying, yeah, I know. That's why I'm still at work the next day. You know, we're not (laughs) done either.
2: No, we're not.
1: Yeah. And I think when families
2: are the individual experience of the housing crisis, when someone is actually feeling all of those things pile on top of themselves, it becomes even harder to navigate whatever that next step is. You really sort of give up in place and just trudge through at the moment and are not able to do the planning to perhaps navigate whatever helpful Band-Aid system we have put on it, You know, whether that's sort of calling efficiency Vermont to get your blow test to move to the next stage. It's, there's too much noise to try to find a Band-Aid to plaster over your problem.
0: I agree. So we're going to take a quick break hear from some of our underwriters, and then Emily, Mara, and I will return in a moment. Welcome back to the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 FM, LP, your local Brattleboro station. I am your host, Olga Peters, and if you're just joining us, I am in Our mobile studio today in the municipal offices in the village of Brattleboro slash town of Rockingham and I am with Emily Kornheiser representative Emily Kornheiser and Mara Collins from the Vermont Housing Finance Agency and we are talking about the quote-unquote Vermont housing crisis Um, Mara let's jump in and talk about demographics because I think Emily had some some questions about that um well, we talk a lot in Vermont
2: about our demographic crisis, um, which is really an American demographic crisis and a New England demographic crisis. And I'm not even entirely sure if it's a crisis or just a thing that's happening that we need to be aware of and plan for. And so, and I'm not against the word crisis. I'm happy to throw it around willy nilly when we talk about housing. But for demographics, I want to understand it a little bit better and understand what it looks like, what it means for housing, and how it's sort of how it's shaped and affects everything else.
1: Well, first off, I, we were just talking about the housing crisis. Um, I think it's great you're talking about, you know, is that the right word? Um, I was not around before the baby boomers were, I'll be honest. Um, <laughs> but that was a crisis for this country. You know, when when the baby boomer, when we realized we were in boomed. the midst, yes, of this boom, and there were wonderful things. And I can't imagine what it would have been like as a eight nine month pregnant woman and you know hearing people talk about that this impending birth of the love of your life you know your child was going to be a crisis for this country Mm -hmm. but it was a crisis I mean there was there was stress on our schools there was stress on our roads there was stress on our jobs and everything you know it and huge
2: stress on our environment as we you know stripped it stripped farmland bare to build housing. And a lot of
1: this crisis we really could uh, account for and better understand after we were in the midst of it. So I have a hard time thinking of people as a crisis. Mm-hmm. I, I think of things as changing as you were alluding to. And um, the, the problem I see with Vermont is that um, I don't see us changing. Mm-hmm. Uh I see a lot of stagnation. Mm-hmm. And and I'm I'm not the only one. Um you know, the state was yes. just downgraded um by two of the rating agencies and and spoke to in that downgrade that some of the reason is because of our stagnant demographics. Mm-hmm. And I want to be very clear with your listeners that uh, I'm not from Vermont, so if if that is very important to you to hear a Vermonter talk about demographics, that's not what they're getting. Um, and so I've only been here for 17 years, and I know that that means nothing. Um, and I and I struggle with that. Mm-hmm. I struggle with continually being reminded, in a really jokey folksy way, <laughs> that I will never be fully welcomed here. Mm -hmm. And I am a middle-class, heteronormative white woman and doing just fine with that. But that joke about who is a Vermonter and reminding us all continually of who is not, is not creating the welcoming environment Mm -hmm. that makes me proud to call Vermont home. And I moved here by choice. I had a lot of options of where I wanted to live. I have lived internationally. I have been in um, a lot of parts of the country, and I chose and sought out Vermont, and I love Vermont, and I have dedicated not only um, to raising a family here with my three kids, and I have committed to my community and volunteer a lot. I've committed my entire career to serving the state of Vermont and the residents here, and... um, And yet, it is very common and funny to be reminded that, no, no, if you're not... And my parents were both born in Vermont, I want to be very clear. (laughs) Uh, All my grandparents, all my aunts and uncles, Vermont was always home, but my dad had the goal to get a job in New York after he graduated from Champlain College, and because I was born out there... um, you know, I, I can't claim that. And I just wonder what that must be like for new Americans, mm-hmm. new transplants to the state, people who are feeling out. Maybe they're here on a ski weekend and they're trying to see if they're gonna move here. And and I don't know that that's helping us. Now, I don't think that I wonder about
2: that so much myself, because so I've been here for 23 years now and- um, came here by choice and left in search of an economy and came back for love of community. And I've often thought that it was because, you know, I'm a fourth generation New Yorker and no one could ever deny that about me upon meeting me or because I was Jewish and it was, I'm so clearly ethnic that that makes me other. But to hear from you that even with your family background being from here, you still hear it all the time. um, It's just overwhelming to me. And I think about my... My first apartment here, I, my roommate was someone who's from here and whose stepfather is very, very from here. Um, and sort of related to half of a number of communities in the area. And so I was able to navigate resources through her, navigate the rental market and the relationships that are required in the rental market here, navigate how to g- get rid of garbage, navigate, I mean, just things, the number of relationships and inside relationships that are required to navigate how to just have housing in this community. I mean, the guy who plows my driveway is the step now, 24 years later, is <laughs> actually the nephew of my friend's stepfather. And so it's just I can't imagine what it what it would be to be without that web of mm-hmm. relations, given how inside Mm -hmm. everything is here.
1: Yeah, I don't know if um, Vermont would have felt as welcoming to me if I didn't step into instant family of cousins and aunts and uncles and all this. Um, In that way, I had a huge leg up, not to mention other ways that I have just a leg up, um, uh, unfortunately, because of my race and other things. So it, um, and, you know, I welcoming, welcomeness is, uh, whatever word I'm looking for there, is um, a piece of this, but it does go beyond that, and we do get into um, job opportunities, you know, educational opportunities, things like that. What it really comes down to, I didn't go to college to be an anthropologist, and I think I only took one anthropology class as an undergrad once, and it was a long time ago. But I swear I remember the theme of the class was something along the lines of totally homogenous societies and communities die. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's (laughs) it's just... No doubt, um, yep. I don't remember much, but I think I remember that. And uh, that's what I walked away with. And I am worried for the future of Vermont. If we... Um, insulate so much that we always that we're too Mm homogenous, and I think that we will be stronger and really the only way we're going to survive as a state and and to thrive is to bring in more diversity and welcome it and I see that making the state more affordable overall my piece is housing but there are other pieces but making Vermont more affordable overall will help us in trying to make this a more welcoming community. Mm -hmm. One piece of that that I think about a lot is how,
2: and I've talked to you about this before, and I remember you sharing some really compelling numbers, um, which I did not warn you to bring with you, so you don't have to (laughs) recite them. Um, But this idea of how Vermonters sort of make it work with the low wages here. Mm -hmm. But if you're coming here from a place of going to college without generational wealth that took you there, and so you are arriving in Vermont with $200,000 in student loan debt, you can't make it work with those low wages.
1: Yeah, you're exactly right. And housing, I feel, a disproportionate need for housing to be a part of our solution to honestly our racial divide in this country and in this state because it is so um, overtly to blame for this divide that we have. Mm -hmm. I mean the reason that um, we have more whites who have achieved college education than blacks and other minorities. Is because of the home equity that those whites were able to earn during, during the baby boom. Exactly mm-hmm. during the peak housing time in this nation. I mean, I don't know that we will ever be able to recreate the home price appreciation that happened after World War II, you know, and through the '70s. I mean, this right. and um, and so that huge accumulation of wealth in terms of equity. To those of us who were homeowners through that time, I worked for that man. I bu- I saved. <laughs> I scrimped. I bought that home. I kept that home up to quality. I fixed it up. You know that is deserved. That now I'm sitting on hundreds of thousands of dollars of home equity that I'm going to turn around and pay for my kids to go to college with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when you didn't have that golden ticket at entry to get in there, and you bought your home maybe in the 80s when interest rates were at 15 to 18 percent maybe you bought your home in the 90s for all that delay of buying a home you are delaying that accumulation of wealth and we know that homes are the number one source of middle income equity and and assets and i would love to flag
2: this moment to include a link about some of the history around redlining when we share this podcast because i think for folks we're going really through some really complex, fast yeah. through some complex stuff. So I want to make sure just we flag it if anyone wants to go in deeper to really understand why whites had so much access to housing. Oh my gosh! Have please have me back. Not. Please
1: have me back. I have so much to <laughs> say, and I know we don't have enough time. But uh, I just the book, The Color of Law. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yep. I mean, I read it in a day, and I loan out my copy, and people were like, "Wow, you really felt strongly," because it's all underlined <laughs> and exclamation points. I mean. Um, there's a lot to be said about this Mm -hmm. and um, so but going back to the student loan burden Mm -hmm. I know you were talking about that as Mm -hmm. well Um, the there is a correlation between how much student loan debt um, Millennials have these the studies that have been done now on Millennials how much student loan debt they have and how you can track it to for every $10,000 more of debt we can see the suppressing impact that that has on the home ownership rate,
2: and how much more likely people are to move to cities, right? Absolutely, that um, which
0: is not Vermont. In case that, was about that. Right, we worry about our rural economy, mm-hmm. and well, yes. right. there's a piece of it right there. Mm-hmm.
1: For those of us not from Vermont, even Burlington is <laughs> not <laughs> a city. It Technically, is but it's really small. Um, and so, you know, there is it is having an impact. Student loan debt burden is absolutely having an impact on. Um, the homeownership rate. And what worries me is that when you don't, I don't think everyone always needs to become a homeowner. I want to Mm -hmm. be very clear. Um, There are so many economic reasons why it's really good to be able to be mobile and follow the next job prospect. Um, There's a lot of reasons why homeownership is not for everyone. It's also, homeownership is such an incredible
2: time burden. Yeah, And so I want to make I don't want to bring us on too far a detour, but also want to name, I think, um, one, in terms of just the time burden of having to take care of another thing instead of calling someone to take care of a thing is huge. But also the age of our housing stock and the amount of time suck mm-hmm. that is for Vermonters um, to actually take care of that housing stock, that would be so different if we were able to really invest in maintenance of our housing stock. I you know, tell this story probably too much, but My partner has basically been lost to the cause of community service for the last six years because all he does in his free time is work on our house. And the first year he thought it was fun. Mm -hmm. And now he desperately would like to go be a good member of the community and volunteer somewhere. Mm
1: -hmm. And he
2: does not because he works on his house. And we, I mean, that's true for almost all of my friends. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. It is. It can be overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And um, and yet there's a benefit of home ownership. And and there's this push-pull. You know, I teach at UVM on the side sometimes, and I'll... Um, spend a, a week talking about homeownership ownership and benefits and man I can get those students riled up and they believe like every <laughs> single person should be a homeowner all the time no matter what and all that as a mortgage lender that makes me very nervous but um, the next week I show up and when I start talking about rental housing I mean they're ready to throw out the whole homeownership model because they believe <laughs> you know in the but it's it's funny when you dig into something you can always peel apart the pros and the cons and the things but What I worry about if homeownership is not affordable and accessible long-term is that if student loan debt or other burdens are keeping someone from buying a home. You know, what we see is millennials, there's this thought of millennials don't want to own, and now that they're getting older, by the way, for the listeners, just like, millennials aren't 20 anymore, Mm -hmm. just as a reminder. They're in their 30s. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So they're looking down the barrel of 40, uh, some of them, and... They, we're seeing, they are buying homes. Let me be very good. Like, the yeah. I, I live market. with
2: the millennial, yeah. the person I'm so, talking about that's working yeah. on the house. Is and the so, I am not, for the listeners who might think, and have forgotten Generation X ever existed. <laughs> we're real. I'm with we you. All, I'm with we you. are here. Oh, three yeah. yeah. chairs. in the yeah. room. Some of us bought our
0: homes late in life.
1: <laughs> I still rent. Yeah. There you <laughs> go. And, and the, but for all the time that, because of student loan debt are other things, that we postpone buying a home. If you think about it we're all buying in pretty much hopefully a lot of us are buying into a 30-year mortgage Mm -hmm. and so if I'm 30 and I buy my home theoretically I would have that home paid off when I'm 60 so if I'm turning 60 and I'm thinking that retirement is in my future at 65 67 it's looking okay because I don't have that Um, housing cost. And so Mm -hmm. when that goes away, all of a sudden, maybe there's some more money for health care or for other things, and I don't need to um, have the paycheck every week. But if I postpone buying a home just till I'm 40, now it's not paid off till I'm 70. Right? Shoot, now I got to work until I'm 70. And what if there's health care needs? What if there's other things that draw me away? It are... Our economy is at risk if we if we lose that. Mm-hmm. But that's not to scare people into Vermont has a very high home ownership rate. Mm-hmm. And we love to take credit for that. We love to say our homeownership rate is higher than the US. But just average. because we have so many white people. That's right? exactly <laughs> it. I know. That's what guess. <laughs> it it's just if you look at the white US home ownership rate, it is exactly where the um, the Vermont home ownership rate is mm-hmm. because we are ninety. Mm-hmm. Ninety-four
2: percent white. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, I uh, was that your um. We're going to wrap up.
0: Oh, you're good. Come on in. Keep doing what you need to do. We're grateful to borrow your office. <laughs> um, I'm just for listeners. I was just speaking to the person who actually. Owns this office mm-hmm. that we're doing the interview in. Um, yeah, we do have. We have about five more minutes, uh, and we need to wrap up. So I'm I'm curious, Mara. You know, we've we've touched on so many aspects of what it means to have a home, whether it's a rental home, a shared home, home ownership. Um, but we've also touched on all the things in the economy that can make it really difficult to have have either. Um, so. Because we have a policy wonk in the room, Emily, um, if you were to pull three levers um, to improve <laughs> policy around housing in Vermont, um, what would you pull first? Because there are so many things you could pull. And whenever you pull, we're going to tell you what's the wrong one.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, no, I feel like my children, I know how this game works. Well, the first lever is to ask for three more levers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, I need to spend a second with that. You know, the, the things that I find myself working on um, so actively now is in one, okay, I mean, you know what, I'm gonna pick my three levels, federal, state, local. How's that? Because, oh, I love that. Well, okay. because I can't, I really can't um, say that it can get down to three, but you know, the at the federal level, well, <laughs> this week I have some concerns. Uh, And not for the impeachment or whatever reasons you may be thinking, but what you don't know is going on this week is going to rock my world in a way that you have no idea. Mm. That Thursday... No, today's Thursday. Thursday or Friday this week. There are going to be new CRA rules proposed. CRA is the Community Reinvestment Act. Mm -hmm. Uh. This is... You've heard about this is how banks, um, it really motivates where they make their investments. Mm -hmm, mm Now. These rules need refreshing. They need updating. And, and there's just going to be a proposal that's going to be floated you know, this week, and we will comment on it, and who knows where we'll end up when everything's done. Castelia flagged this last week for me. It is, it's going to really direct, because we know it already directs, where banks make loans mm-hmm. and make investments. Mm-hmm. We talked about the federal tax credit program. Mm-hmm. It's going to impact how much they're willing to pay for those tax credits Mm -hmm. and where they're willing to do that. What if they decide Brattleboro is not a prioritized area anymore Mm -hmm. and another community is? What if they decide – I mean, already we struggle because Vermont doesn't have the same – there's, we don't have a lot of big banks in mm-hmm. this state. We right. don't have, you know, a Citibank or whatever. And so, you know, I've talked to my peers in Delaware or South Dakota or these pla- where these financial institutions have their home base. Talk about New York City, and there's so much activity generated because those banks have to geographically focus a lot mm-hmm. of their work in those home communities, leaving places like Vermont out. Mm-hmm. And so, one policy lever I'm I'm watching is. The, the CRA reform that's going to be happening. And when they ever get around to reforming Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, these government sponsored enterprises, GSEs, that housing finance reform is also going to have a huge impact on Vermont. So, those are, those are some levers that I'm watching. How I want to pull them is way too complicated for a less than five minute question. <laughs> but, you know, maybe more interest on the state level. Um, it gets down to resources. Mm-hmm. That the feds um, put money into housing, and as I was explaining before, they don't cover the full bill. Mm-hmm. They, they've they done a good amount, but they turn to us as a state and say, now, now you put some skin in the game. And we can argue about how much skin and how appropriate that is, but that is the system that we have. And so it has been wonderful in the last two years that we had the support of the legislature to pass a housing bond and to now be deploying those resources. I've never put more miles on my car as to driving around to the ribbon cuttings and ground breakings. I mean, it, I am busy because there's so much housing investment that that money has spurred. And it's start. we're starting to see it in the boring data numbers around vacancy rates. Mm-hmm. We're starting to see the churn in markets. We're starting to see the connections that employers are making, saying like, oh, I have- And know, am says, I
2: correct that we need more money pretty much right now if we're gonna sustain that momentum?
1: That's right. And if we pull back from this investment that we've made, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. going to, you can't start and stop these conversations. And. Um, So there is a pipeline of really worthy um, developments that have been in the um, the eyes of our developers where they need to move forward. And the last lever I'd wanna pull is at the local level, and it's being open and welcoming to those developments. I like talking with, there's a lot of housing commissions. Olga, you mentioned about housing needs assessments Mm -hmm. that um, communities are looking more at what their needs are in a community, what can they be doing with planning and zoning and um, in being a welcoming community when there are developments being proposed or redevelopments of buildings that will only bring up the grand list value, bring up community development, economic vitality of our communities when those um, redevelopments and developments happen.
0: Well, Mara Collins, the Executive Director of the Vermont Housing and Finance Agency, thank you for joining us on the happy hour today. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. <laughs> and Emily, as always, um, if folks need to get in touch with you, how can they do that?
2: Emily Kornheiser at gmail, ECornheiser at ledge.state.vt.us. You can find me on Facebook. Or Twitter, or Instagram, or you can just stop me in the street. I look forward to talking to you on Monday at the library at six, six or six thirty. I don't remember right now. We are having a Verm- um, Brattleboro Legislative Forum, and then every Saturday at the Co-op Cafe at eleven a.m. I am there for office hours. And I want to make sure, before we close, that we hear about this incredible housing study that's coming out and where we can find it.
1: Yes, we have. there's a lot of housing studies. There's a statewide housing needs assessment that's going to be released um, after the first of the year uh, in, I can't tell you what month, I'm blanking right now. I think it'll be by March or so. There's some community housing studies coming out. Keys to the Valley is one Mm -hmm. that's covering a 69-town region on both sides of the Connecticut River, New Hampshire and Vermont. Um, They are going to, that's a longer range study that won't be out for a while, but they're going to be really embarking on that work. And there's many local communities who are trying to understand their housing needs um, as well. On top of all that, VHFA um, with our partners is supporting a study on the cost of housing and why is it um, so expensive to build affordable housing and what do we get for it. So really Mm -hmm pivoting on the cost of housing and the value of that housing and the public policy goals. We talked about homelessness. We talked about economic development. We haven't talked about historic preservation. You know, what we get when we invest in our downtown. So that study is going to be coming out at the first of the year. And I would love an opportunity to talk more with you about it, Emily, because I think we could really dive into Mm -hmm. some of these public policy goals that we achieve by creating housing. You know, every time there's first floor commercial space, or there's energy efficiency happening or other things. That sounds great. This is fantastic. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. I
0: am your host, Olga Peters. You can find us every Friday at 2 p.m. on WVEW 107.7 FM and, as always, at the Vermontitude SoundCloud page and the Vermontitude Facebook page. Have a great weekend, everyone.